In Formula One, with great power comes great opportunity. Mika Hakkinen literally goes downhill to victory. Look at the joy, the euphoria of the McLaren team on the left. And you are looking at the world champion of 1998. The engines that powered McLaren's Mika Hakkinen to championship glory were created by a Swiss engineer some have described as an artist, Mario Illion. The world came off our shoulders. I mean, it was just fantastic. And, and all the people involved in it, you know, that it was just an Im immense feeling. I remember after that race, we all smoked a cigar <laughs> because it was, it was just such a fantastic feeling. Welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson, and engine extraordinaire, Mario Illion. F1 engines produce immense power and incredible noise, but their designers are behind-the-scenes figures who we rarely hear from. Mario deserves to be heard because with his company, Ilmore Engineering, he's taken teams and drivers to the very top. He won in IndyCar first with Roger Penske and Mario Andretti before moving into Formula One, initially with Leighton House, then March, Tyrrell and Sauber. And in the mid-1990s, Mario and Ilmore teamed up with McLaren. Together they won races and then world championships. Mario has been at the forefront of engine technology for four decades using exotic materials to make engines lighter, more powerful, and more efficient. He's also been working on Formula One's current hybrid power units, which are the most efficient in the world. This is a fascinating conversation about power, pioneering technology, and the pursuit of perfection. I hope you enjoy it. Mario, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's great to speak to you. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you and an honor, I would say. There's so much to talk about. We're sitting in one of the meeting rooms here at Ilmore in Northamptonshire. But your co-founder at Ilmore, Paul Morgan, once described you as an artist like Picasso. Does that description make you smile? And is it accurate? <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I don't think it's very accurate. Maybe I've been very particular on the detail all the time, quite dedicated to get things right first time. You've designed many great engines. We'll come on to some of those in a minute, but can you just describe the design process? How much room is there for artistry? I think that, that comes as you do the design. I think an engine has to be pleasing in its construction and in its, its concept. Then uh, I think you probably see an element of artistic design in a way. But, I mean, you see functional things which look ugly, but you can make it functional and look nice. I think that's probably the difference. How long does the design process take? Well, it never really stops. Obviously, you, you have to start with a concept and then you get into the design in the detail design. So it's, it's a continuous process. And, and when you have, you think you have finished, then obviously you, you think you can improve it already. And you start considering the next step. 
Is it true that you lock yourself in a room? I've read this for 18 hours a day and refuse phone calls. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. When you're in isolation, then you are much more effective in designing. I I remember when when I'm there for a few weeks, you have almost every dimension in your head. You have got all the details. You don't have to look it up all the time. So you're very effective of coming up with a design. And is one person designing these modern racing engines or is it an army of people? Uh, nowadays, it's, it's, I wouldn't say an army, but there are obviously several people involved. But in the early days, I was just on my own in a spare bedroom. <laughs> and you would do the whole thing? Yes. Now, you've been designing engines for more than 40 years. Where have you seen the biggest performance gains in that time? The biggest gains, I would say, are in the friction reduction and combustion efficiency. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you've improved the friction, for example, the friction losses? Well, you need to optimize every detail, obviously. You've got to consider, do I need to have a bearing size of that size? How can I reduce the friction in the bore, piston rings? And obviously, weight is, a, is a, as well a, a way of reducing friction. If you can make all the moving components light, then obviously you get a benefit. And I has, have always been very determined to make lightweight engines. Of course, in, in the late 90s, I remember you using some pretty exotic metals. If we talk about beryllium, for example, what were the qualities of that that made you want to use it? Well, aluminium beryllium is just a fantastic material. It has a stiffness of almost the stiffness of steel. It's as light, roughly like magnesium. has got very good properties on heat uh, uh, transfer. And it made it more or less ideal, I think, for, the, for a piston. The only problem was to get hold of material and then make it workable for a piston. So we had to develop the whole process of uh, heat treatment, of forging it and then machining it. You only could machine it with diamond tools. And so it was quite complex. But I have had a small team of people here developing the process to actually get this material usable for us. And then we made pistons. They were 167 grams. I mean, extremely light. That's extraordinary. Sounds expensive as well. Yes, the material is expensive, but overall it was cheap because we had a much longer life out of the engine with those pistons in it. So we could increase the use of the, of the engine and therefore obviously saving on rebuilds. And that's a much bigger saving than the cost of the piston. That was what, late 90s, wasn't it? When Hakkinen was winning world championships for McLaren Mercedes. That's correct, yes. Were there any other exotic metals uh, that you were using at the time you can tell us about now? Yeah, we used some MMCs. I I don't know, what is an MMC? Well, that's particular materials with uh, carbon fiber in it and and particulars embedded. We used uh, some beryllium as well in liners. And obviously then the coatings came up as well, which obviously helped reducing friction as well, in addition. It was an extraordinary time, those late 90s, weren't they? It seemed to me that that was peak Formula One engine building in terms of you had quite a lot of freedom in terms of what you could use. You could use unlimited number of engines during the course of a season. Was that the most rewarding period for you? It was a fantastic time, yes. Ivan mentioned titanium aluminite. That was another exotic material we used for making valves. And all these things were really fascinating. And 
initially difficult to, to master, but then when you had mastered the problems, then they've given you quite a lot of benefits. And were all engine manufacturers at the time doing this? Were Ferrari doing the same? Or do you feel that you were way ahead of the opposition? I think we were ahead of the opposition, and that's why things the, got... The results would suggest that was the case. But. <laughs> that's why things got banned, <laughs> eventually. It's, it's a sort of compliment to you, isn't it? When things get banned, you're doing too good a job, really. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Mario, tell us, tell us a little bit about Ilmore now. You founded this company with Paul Morgan and Roger Penske. 40 years ago. Tell us how you came to start a joint venture with those guys. Well, obviously I worked at Cosworth, so did Paul Morgan. And during those years in, at Cosworth, we became friends. And we did some projects on the side. Paul had at home a CNC milling machine and lace and all the equipment you needed to make exciting things. So I, I would design bits and pieces and he would make them. We had a good working relationship in that sense. Very complimentary. So after five years at Cosworth, I felt I needed to move on to do something else. I discussed that with Paul, and he said, well, it's about time for me as well. Why don't, and that was his suggestion, why don't we do something together? But then the question is, what can we do? <laughs> Which project should we start with? Looking at the market, Formula One obviously was a bit too difficult to get in as a newcomer. And so we felt, well, IndyCar would be probably the, the field we could start and, and make things work. But we didn't have any money. <laughs> so Paul was involved with uh, IndyCar engine, with, with Cosworth, and he knew Roger Penske. So we called up Roger and asked him whether he would be interested in a, in a new engine for IndyCar. And he said, yeah, sounds interesting. Sent me a business plan and a, a timetable. <laughs> so handwritten sheet, business plan, and a timetable. And he showed the interest in it. He sent over a lawyer to try to make a contract with us. But that wasn't quite what we wanted. What, a contract to supply his team? No, 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 a contract to make a joint venture. But it, it was too restrictive. And then the lawyer wanted us to come to the States. I said, no way. It's too expensive. <laughs> we have no money. <laughs> we have no money. You know, not on that basis. So eventually they said, okay, we pay for the trip. And Paul and I went over there on a Sunday and met Roger in New Jersey. He was living at the time, four o'clock in the afternoon. And then he said, what's the problem? What, do, what are you not liking about this? He said, nothing. I said, okay. Let's put it aside. What, what do you want? So we discussed what our view was, how, how we should start. And, and then we came to the agreement that Paul and I would have each 25%, Roger would have 50%, and would find a manufacturer and would give them 25% of his 50. That was the basis of it. And then he said to his lawyer, okay, make a contract around this. And uh, that's how we started. How long was that meeting? That was about not quite two hours. So you did a deal from scratch, effectively, because you binned the, the, the earlier contract in two hours to start the company that has gone on to, to dominate the world of motorsport for 40 years. How extraordinary. <laughs> it was fantastic. And obviously, Roger is just a fantastic person. He just made the decision there and then, we're going to do it. So did he find that manufacturer that he said he was going to? 
Yes, we started beginning of January in 1984, and in October of 84, he found General Motors Chevrolet to participate. And then you never looked back. Tell us about the challenge of IndyCar, because you won your first race in 87 at Long Beach with Mario Andretti. But the process of getting to that point, how difficult was it? It was quite difficult. Obviously, we had to start with nothing. We had Paul's machine shop. Is that so? It's the building we're sat in now didn't exist. No, 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 no. Okay. Nothing existed. Obviously, I was working at home. Paul working at his place, doing things and making things. Then we made plans for uh, the factory. Had to find uh, the site. And obviously, Paul was living in Bricksworth as well at the time. After three months, I had enough schemes and basic design that we employed two, two draftsmen helping. And then we rented our, uh, our, an office in the works place in Bricksworth. And <laughs> the four of us came up with all the, the drawings and plans while the factory was built. And then when did you have your first IndyCar engine on the dyno? On the 16th of May, uh, 85. On the plan was 15th of May. Ah, oh, you were late. <laughs> it, it, was, it was a day late. It was on the dyno, but it didn't fire up because we had a problem with the ignition system. <laughs> but you go into IndyCar and you're competitive from the outset. You win that race in 87 and then you dominate the Indy 500 from 1988 onwards, really. At what point did Formula One come onto your radar? Thinking about it in 88, and we started... A, a concept in 89 and again Roger was uh, supporting it and financed it the initial thing of the Formula One and then Adrian Ewing came along and uh, asking whether we would have an engine for him for the Leighton House which you ran in, in 1991 no we tested in 1990 I think already Right. First. And ra raced in 1991. Ra yes. Yeah. How instrumental was Akira Akagi, the Leighton House boss? I mean, could you have done it without him or was Roger's funding enough? No, Roger's funding was just for the initial part. Leighton House was important in that respect, but it didn't last very long because Leighton House got obviously in trouble in 91, in financial trouble, so the funds didn't turn up any longer. <laughs> so. And why do you think Adrian came to you? Well, we had quite a good relationship. We worked together with Newman Haas in 87. And he was a race engineer at Newman Haas at the time. And uh, I remember we had uh, quite a problem with, with the oil tank in Indianapolis, going on left 10 corners all the time. We then sat together in a, in a hotel and designed the oil tank or modified the oil tank, which was in the Lola at the time, and, and make it work. We, we built a, a, a friendship, really, from that time on, and it's lasting until today. How do you think that 91 Ilmore V10 stacked up against the front-running engines of the time, the, the Honda, the, the Renault? I don't think we had quite the horsepower they had, but we were massively lighter than they were. The first engine had 126 kilograms, whereas the competition was 170 plus. Why were you so much lighter? Well, because I put the focus on, on the weight. I was calculating every stud and bolt and nut to make sure we, we come to a minimum weight I had planned to do so. 
And that is what Adrian saw in you, I guess. Yeah, I mean, Adrian obviously liked lightweight engines. And obviously that is helping as well on the center of gravity. Yeah, we probably had quite a few things in common in that respect. And obviously making a very small package, that's, that's the other benefit for the car designer to have a, a package so he has more freedom for the aerodynamics. I was always very keen to have low heat rejection because that reduces your radiator ducting. And then, then. so I think the engine on itself is one thing, but we always have to think as a package. How is it used and what are the important things for the aerodynamicist? And obviously having Adrian, we could discuss these things ahead of time and all the projects we did. Yeah, I can see you two had a or have a, a really good working relationship. But how hand-to-mouth was it after the Leighton House money ran out? Oh, it was very difficult. But we decided, Paul and I decided to fund it ourselves, to keep going. But it's very limited uh, resources. I mean, we had two clutches left and a few gear ratios. So, I mean, there were big compromises everywhere we had to race things. But at the same time, I think we did manage... To, even get some points with even Capelli. Sixth in Hungary. In Hungary, yes. Yeah. What did that world championship point mean to you? Uh, it was obviously a, a big step for us. Even with, with the money we had and, and there was a few bits and pieces to actually go and get to the points, that was a big step. On the subject of, of drivers, you mentioned Ivan Capelli scored your first world championship point. How important are drivers when it comes to developing an engine? They are important in the respect that they can give you feedback. Obviously, the drivability is always an issue, which helps the driver to make good lap times. So to, to have the feedback for that kind of thing and the improvements you can make, helps but you need as well a driver who can look after the equipment one issue we had during the that first year because we still were running on valve springs initially there was a tendency to over f the engine quite often <laughs> and that didn't help the program no gets expensive yes. too doesn't it who's the best driver you've ever worked with on the formula one side mika kimi and in indycar rick mears what stood out about Mika Hakkinen and Kimi Raikkonen? Well, they were naturally extremely fast. They could sense small differences. You know, if he could improve, especially on the drivability side, if he could make improvements, they could give you good feedback. Are you looking for a driver to back up the data, or is it more than that? Well, the data is an important part. Obviously, we look at the data, but then to get... The feeling of the driver is important as well. They're, they're not always uh, saying the same thing, but it's still good to understand the driver's feelings, but as well look at the data and then make the right conclusion out of it. I've been told in the past that Mika Hakkinen was very open-minded. He, he was willing to give anything a go. Absolutely. Uh, and, and that includes a hand throttle. Do you remember using a hand throttle with Mika? No, I don't remember that. Can you remember doing any sort of extreme tests with him? Well, in a sense, one of the extreme tests was when we had the additional brake pedal. Of course. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. It, what, what did it do? It helped um, at cornering. Yeah, reduce the understeer. And Mika was very what he loved that tool. Yes, and and he did use it extremely efficiently. And the, the other thing Mika was impressive in. I remember a race in Hockenheim. We were leading the race, and they fueled him short. Didn't get all the fuel in, so he had to do a lot of fuel saving to finish the race. And he managed to reduce the fuel consumption by around ten percent, and not losing much of a lap time. That was extremely impressive. Going back to your journey, you expanded your engine supply to two teams in 1992. Tyrrell joined March. Um, what were the pros and cons of supplying two teams? Well, the benefit was that Tyrrell was quite a competitive team and a competent team, whereas March was on the <laughs> right at the edge of, of failing. And from that point of view, obviously, it was a, a, a big benefit for us to have a, a second team to see where, where we are really. And Ken Tyrrell was an extremely honorable person because we made the, the contra or the deal with Ken on the 23rd of December <laughs> the, year, the year before. And, and he said, I've got a lot of money. I can pay you that much per race. And we came to an agreement and uh, it worked. And the money turned up every time as promised. And you had a, a couple of fourth places that year as well, one for Tyrrell, one for, for March. Did you feel at that point you were starting to get noticed by the big teams? We had an inquiry at the time as well from, from McLaren, which was surprising in a way, but uh, we couldn't supply them. It, it was too early for us. What made a big difference? We had interest from Mercedes and we had interest from Porsche at the time because obviously they were engaged in, in Formula One or had ambition to go to Formula One. So that was giving us a bit of confidence that we are on the right path. Then obviously the, the opening for Sauber started to be there. Did that opening come about through Mercedes or was it completely mm. separate? It was separate because I knew Peter Sauber and then he did indicate interest to go Formula One after the Group C ended. That's how we got together. So the Swiss joined together, joined forces, yeah. <laughs> Swiss super team. Uh, actually, that's, that's a, a point in itself. Were you tempted to set up in Switzerland? Why, why are we in Brixworth and not near Hinville, for example? No, that was never an attempt. We, we were quite happy here because we had enough land, we could expand, we had very good people here. And I think the, the infrastructure and the people is the most important thing when you yeah. build a team. So you needed to be in the heart of Motorsport Valley yes, in the UK. The Sauber deal comes on. You supply them in 1993, their first season of Formula One. We're seeing concept by Mercedes-Benz on the side of the car. Tell us about the journey you went on with Mercedes and how it came to be that they ended up taking a shareholding in your company. Well, 93 was important in a sense that obviously we got together with Sauber. That was one thing. But on the IndyCar side, we ended the relationship with Chevrolet in uh, 93. We have been quite successful in IndyCar. And some people felt, well, if you're successful, why do we have to spend so much money? <laughs> they wanted to reduce the budget. And then I said, no, if you want to maintain 
our level of competence and, and competitiveness. We need to have the budget. So we stopped working together with them. And then in November, Mercedes came along and uh, wanted to enter w with us in Formula One and IndyCar. So obviously that combination was just perfect. But we obviously had our pushrod already designed by then, almost finished. And then we said to Mercedes guys, well, we're going to have a special engine for Indy. And obviously they were very pleased about that. And you dominated the 1994 Indy 500. Yes, their first uh, entrance piece. Yeah, and they dominated and, and were going to win by laps if, um, I think, Emerson... Emerson Howley. crashed. Yeah. <laughs> crashed <laughs> while trying to lap someone, didn't he? He tried to lap Al Unser. His teammate. His teammate. His teammate. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine what was being said on the pit wall at that time. Tell us a little bit about the pushrod engine. It's, it's sat outside the office where we're sat now. That was a one-off engine for one race, the Indy 500 in 1994. Did you see some loophole in the regulations? What made you design one engine for one race? It wasn't a loophole. The Indy or USAC decided, because Buick didn't quite make it year after year, so they relaxed the rules. And after the Indy 500 in 93, they said the block is free, the head is free, everything is free now. doesn't have to be based on production any longer. The only thing you had we had to maintain is the concept of a push rod, center camshaft, push rods and the two valves per cylinder. Everything else was free. After the race, when we saw those new regulations, we got together with Roger Penske and said, we got to build one of these. He said, how much power do you think you get? He said, well, over 940 horsepower, guarantee. And it will fit in the same space as the current race engine. He said, okay, let's go, let's do it. <laughs> And we got together, designed and manufactured it in six months, then three months of development, went to Indy, pole, won the race, and then into the museum. Now, you said 940. What did you actually get? 1,024. 1,024. And what sort of speeds were we seeing? What was the pole average speed? 231, I think it was. And convincingly more than anyone else? Yes, but the straight line speed was phenomenal. We, we crossed the finish line with 412k. <laughs> <laughs> Just think about that for a second. They, they, yeah. had, they had wheel spin in third gear. They had to be careful. Yeah. <laughs> and not for the first time, you were too good. And they, and they banned it. And actually, Penske went back to the Indy 500 the following year and didn't qualify. Yes. So that's a real backhanded compliment to you. But I'm guessing Roger wasn't best pleased no and uh, the other thing is when we turned up at indy with those cars and the engine obviously we kept the whole thing secret as long as we could penske was testing the car in secrecy in places like michigan because he owned that track and in nazareth and so we really could keep everything out until we announced it in in april but just before indy the other thing is I've never seen drivers smile after a few laps like they did at the time because obviously we had about 200 horsepower more than anybody else. If you're a racing driver, that's, uh, <laughs> that's going to get the thumbs up, isn't yes. it? For you to do the deal with Mercedes to do Formula One and IndyCar, did they need to buy into your company or could you have done it just the sort of Ken Tyrrell spec model of, of just paying by the race? No, we, we wanted to have them, obviously what we did, we transferred more or less the shares from Chevrolet to Mercedes. 
but that, that was important because in the initial contract we had with Mercedes was a five-year plan, which obviously gave us stability. We could invest, we could really move forward. That was really important that we had the security to look forward and, and make the, the moves we needed to make. So you finish eighth in the 1994 World Championship with Sauber, just one point behind sixth place. Were you disappointed not to stay with Sauber for 95? No. Sauber was a great team. And I think the car Postelweight designed initially was a fantastic car. It was good looking. It, it really had everything. That uh, 93 car. That 93 yeah, it was, car. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It was just fantastic. Unfortunately, obviously, Harvey passed away too early. But that was a, a brilliant base. But at the same time, we wanted to to be up front. And I think it was too early for Sauber to get to that point. And then McLaren was in the need of an engine at the time, and we all felt that would be probably the better base to become successful in Formula 1. Slightly ironic that they left Cosworth and Ford in 93 to join you in 94, given where you and Paul came from. Yes, yes. <laughs> a few awkward conversations on the phone for you, maybe? I don't know. No, not not really. Obviously, leaving Cosmos at the time, it was very difficult because, uh, I mean, we both enjoyed life at Cosmos and Keith Stockworth was a fantastic person. I learned so much at Cosmos. But at the same time, we felt we need to break out and do our own thing. Was it clear that McLaren's ambitions mirrored yours from day one? Yes, they, they were very ambitious. Obviously, they had a few tough years just before that. And I think the combination of Mercedes and McLaren and, and all the sponsorship they had, that was a good basis of building something. And then, obviously, Adrian Newey joined. Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> the circle was complete. Yes. It was a slightly sticky start. At 95 wasn't the smoothest of seasons for you guys. Why was it so difficult? The car probably wasn't that great. We were not where we needed to be with the engine. We had reliability issues as well. I think we had to step up our game for sure. And then the worst possible end to the year with McHacken's accident. In Adelaide, that was a big blow, yes. The other big issue was uh, Nigel Mansell didn't fit into the chassis. <laughs> I mean, they were, they were just... Yeah, it wasn't the smoothest of seasons. Not the smooth season at all. When did you feel it was all starting to change and that everything was pointing in the right direction at McLaren from the start of 96 or did it take longer? I think 90, it was 97 when it all came together really. And then in 97, in August, Adrian joined. You know, weeks after that, you already could see improvements. And this is when it became really fun for you from a design point of view. You had the budget to explore some of the exotic metals that we were talking about earlier. I remember at the time, maybe you saying that you were chasing RPM. I'd love to know how high on the dyno you got the uh, the engines revving at the time. We only went up to 19.6. That was the maximum. From a reliability point of view, what could you have got up to if it was purely about revs? You know, the top end for sure, we could have gone over 20. But I didn't see the benefit. Probably one thing we had compared to others, we, we were running a smaller board than our competition and from that point of view we had higher 
piston accelerations and higher mean piston speed as well. That restricted, in a way, the REFs. But at the same time, I think we had a better combustion, we had better efficiency, because we could race with, particularly on the start, with less fuel. So we had less weight, and that made us competitive, that we could run with with the same amount of fuel, we probably could run a lap or two longer before we had to do a fuel stop. And for people who don't know, can you just tell us about some of the forces that are going on inside a racing engine, on the pistons, for example? Well, on a piston, we had accelerations up to 96G at the top the center, so massive loads. And obviously, with the beryllium aluminium piston, that was a major benefit. That obviously reduced the forces a lot, reduced the friction, so that, that helped significantly. Wow, extraordinary. And how much were you developing the engines during the year at the time? So the engine that you took to the season-opening Australian Grand Prix in 1998... How much faster would it have been by the season closing, what was it, Japanese Grand Prix? Well, we had almost every race we had something something new on it. No, it was a continuous development and a very aggressive development. But can you put a time, can we put a a lap time on it? Is it half a second from beginning of season to the end? To do it in lap times is probably difficult because that's, it's a combination of so many factors. But obviously on the dyno, we made year by year, we increased the performance by about 24 horsepower. It's almost a a straight line going up and up. So it begs the question, in the space of 12 months you can do that, what is happening in your brain during that time that you're able to see where you can make the gains? Or was it always obvious and it's it's time constraints as much as anything it's time constraints to a degree yes and it, it, i would say it's mainly time when we had enough people at the time we could almost do everything in house we had a very fast response we had too many disappointments with suppliers of being delayed or scrapping things off and paul and i decided very early on we, we want to manufacture almost everything in house so you would know what the development path was in January and it was just a case of having the time to put that development in that would see 24, 25 horsepower richer at the end of the year. I, I wouldn't say we saw the 24 horsepower <laughs> gain at the end of the year, but we had lots of things in place which then resulted in the 24 horsepower because it's always the same thing. It's it's combustion efficiency, it's frictional losses, all these little bits and pieces uh, you can improve and then you get some gains. During this peak period of the late 90s, how many people were you employing here at Bricksworth? We peaked at 504 people. And how many engines would you be producing in a 12-month period? With development and racing, we came up to about 154 engines. That's rebuilds as well. Not new engines. Is that just Formula One? Or just is that Formula One. Just Formula One. And if you include what you were doing in other series as well, how many engines? IndyCar was not that demanding. IndyCar, we produced per year about 45 engines. But there were several teams. It's a complicated business. I can see just the logistics of it as, as much as the, the technical design aspect of it. Would you say, Mario, that those Hakkinen World titles at the end of the 90s, was that the high watermark, the high point of your career? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that was 
for sure a highlight and obviously and a relief in a way that you know we're working towards it and and managed to achieve it and i'm sure you remember the last race in in suzuka was so tense we had schumacher on the front row and hacking on the front row and i remember very well hacking was obviously a little bit nervous and for some reason, before the start, he put the foot down and run the, li- the, run the engine into the limiter for several seconds. This is while stationary on the grid. While stationary on the grid. At the start of the 1999 Japanese Grand Prix, championship rival two metres to his left. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Did you it. ask him why he did that? No, I didn't ask. It was heartbreaking. You know, then you have to do a race. Heart-in-mouth territory for, for 53 laps. Yes, and the sense of relief that you got as he crossed the line. Just describe how you felt. The world came off our shoulders. I mean, it was just fantastic. And, and all the people involved in it, you know, that it was just an Im- immense feeling. I remember after that race, we all <laughs> smoked a cigar <laughs> because it was, it was just such a fantastic feeling. We all sat down and, and enjoyed the cigar. Most of us were not smokers anyway, but... You say that those Formula One championships mean more than anything else. For someone like Roger, who, you know, the captain, who is sort of Mr. Motor Racing in North America, did the magnitude of what you'd achieved in Formula One resonate with him as well? Absolutely. Oh, yes, he was ever so pleased. I mean, Roger is such a supporter of motor and, and he enjoys, obviously, success, whether it's over there or with us in Formula One. I mean, that was tremendous, always, the support we had from him. And even today, is he very involved? Do you speak to him a lot even today? Yes, we're still in contact. We, we have regular phone calls. And he's still, even in his late 80s, he's still as ambitious. Full of energy, yeah. full of energy, full <laughs> of energy, yes. No sooner had you scaled the heights of winning the world titles with McLaren than your partner, Paul Morgan, was killed in a plane accident in the summer of 2001. It was a devastating blow for everyone who knew Paul, but just how do you reflect on that period now? Oh, it was, it was just devastating for sure. I mean, Paul kept my back free to design and, and come up with ideas and, and certainly... I had the burden to look after other things as well, which was, was very painful. And, and Paul was such a great person, dynamic, full of energy, and he was so much into manufacturing and getting things ready. Nothing was too much for him. And obviously, with that loss, it, it, was, it was very difficult. Where were you when you heard the news of his death? Were you at the Austrian Grand Prix? I was at the Austrian Grand Prix, yes. Yes, it happened on a Saturday. I think it was the 15th of May. And I remember Coulthard won the race and didn't spray any champagne. Yes, yes in respect. respect. Yeah. 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 I mean, David Coulthard was a fantastic person as well. Nice driver, appreciating what we were doing and so on. You know, he was, he's a gentleman. So overnight, suddenly there's a lot more going on on your desk other than just designing. Did you, just purely from a business point of view, think about getting someone else in to do what Paul had been doing? Or what, what were your thoughts? Yes, trying to. 
But obviously to find a replacement for Paul was almost impossible. To have that same dedication and, and knowledge. And obviously if you have been partnering each other and growing up with it, I mean, it's such a different thing than getting somebody in to do it. That's just not the same. Has the business never been quite the same again? No, for sure. It, it, it can't can't be the same again. But at the same time, obviously then the decision was made to, and Mercedes had an interest to buy the Formula One part out of it. That was a relief in a, in a sense, because obviously being here with 504 people and, and the risk, if Mercedes would have pulled out of Formula One, you know, then we would have had a huge problem. And obviously with that interest and selling it to Mercedes was in, in many ways a relief that we could have a, a fresh start again. But you retained the Ilmore name. Yes. And I think, are we in the, do we call it special projects? I can't. It, it used to be spe- okay. special projects within, the, within Ilmore at the time. And they were doing IndyCar, NASCAR and, and, and other things. And we retained that and 56 people. What have been the main projects since you sold to Mercedes in 2005? Well, IndyCar obviously continued. We, we did the IndyCar engine for Honda at the time. Then the motorbike project was an interesting one. That's what's in reception yes. as you walk in here. Yeah. Technically very interesting, good regulations, but we couldn't find any money for it. So it was a failure in that respect. How much of a disappointment was it that you couldn't find money and couldn't stimulate interest from a manufacturer? That was a very big uh, disappointment because we were very close to have a, a tobacco sponsor and then the EU banned the tobacco sponsorship. So you could have done it on the back of having that sponsorship? Yes. And then without it, you needed a manufacturer? Yeah. So I had to stop the program. And then there's a marine division, is that right? Yes, but that's in the States. Okay. That's in the States. We have done some work for the marine, but again, that, that is a sort of business came out of Roger. Because Roger bought Mastercraft, and then he said, I need an engine, or I need engines. <laughs> Can you make engines for me? So it just came out of Roger, the blue. Roger sounds like the perfect partner. Because oh, yeah, he yeah. brings in new business, he's full of ideas, full of energy, Absolutely. knows everybody in the racing world over there. Well, not only in the racing world, in the whole car business world, he knows everybody. And, of course, you've been doing a bit in Formula One, when the new regulations came in in 2014. We heard quite a lot about you being involved with Renault. I think it's quite well documented that there's been a bit of involvement with Honda as well. Give us your thoughts on the latest power unit regulation. The current regulation I quite liked because it's all on efficiency. And I think it, these regulations help to make a very efficient combustion engine. Today we have got efficiency just over 50%, which is fantastic just to give us an idea back in 1991 that first formula one engine what sort of efficiency were you getting back then oh, 36 37 percent and we're now over 50 it's extraordinary yes. yeah so that's a massive step and and a lot of the technology we are using in those engines could be applied for road cars so road car engines could still be made more efficient than what they are today and i think that's very attractive and uh, i like this this form of of regulations to achieve the sustainable fuel that is a big step for sure that is, is a necessary step we are going to that can improve situation as well slightly 
because you can then depends on how much freedom there is, but we can tailor the fuel potentially to, to make uh, some improvements as well. So Mary, just to finish off, when you reflect on the last 40 years, can we think of one race that stands out for you as the one where you go, yeah, that was the most satisfying? I think I have to go back to the Indy 594. That probably was the most intense program we ever did. You know, we called the engine 265E, E for evening. (laughs) (laughs) To be accurate, you should have called it N for night. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) What was the design length? How, How long did it take you to design that engine? Six months, design and manufacture. I mean, it's just impossible when you look at back at it because I designed the crankshaft before everything else because the time scale to, to get it was such that we, I had to design it very early on. And so I had to make a lot of commitments and obviously to install it in a given space on the car. So I had a lot of restraints, but we had the people here, they, that whole team, I mean, they're working really day and night and we had parts shipped to the States from Concord. Penske had a, in the shop in the basement, he had a team of people only working at night in secrecy because the rest of the team didn't know anything about it. It was absolute fantastic. It was a stealth program. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then uh, blew everybody away. And it doesn't look like the R word, the retirement word, is, is even anywhere in your mind, let alone at the forefront. No, not at all. Because I, mean, I think as long as can enjoy life doing and I, I like what I'm doing uh, I don't see any reason to retire obviously I do the odd thing outside of racing having a bit of fun but apart from that work is still a major thing in terms of things you're getting up to away from work I did want to ask you about the Peking to Paris <laughs> classic car rally I mean Beijing to Paris what an extraordinary journey what's that like you do it with your daughter don't you that's correct, yes. I did it twice with my daughter. I mean, how can you do something six weeks together in, in the mud and dirt? And that is something you can never repeat with something else because you, you're really stuck together and have to, to make the best out of it. Have, have you been quick? Have you had any success? I think we were reasonably quick, yes. On the first time we did, we, we ended overall 14th out of 96 cars. And it's like it's 14,000 kilometers of rallying, isn't it? It's, yes. Yeah, it's not for the faint-hearted. And we could have been better, but I had to replace the gearbox. <laughs> in, what, on the side of the road? Or? Yes, in Austria. And then I worked all night replacing that gearbox and then wanted to drive off and didn't have any gears. So I had to take it out again and, and repair because the, they have forgotten to assemble it correctly, the one they delivered. <laughs> so. so without that issue we could have been tense yeah i lost too much time there so then you had to go back again didn't you just to see how you'd get on doing it a, a second time but the second time wasn't as successful because i broke a spring <laughs> <laughs> happy memories i can see yes. but look, and happy memories of an extraordinary career so far thank you very much for sharing your thoughts uh, it's been absolutely fascinating i really appreciate your time Well, thank you very much for the time and it's been great to talk to you.
He's never been one to shy away from a challenge. Enjoy the rallies, Mario, and keep redefining what's possible in the world of engines and power units. But what a fascinating chat. I loved Mario's stories from the mid to late 90s about how relentless engine development was in the pursuit of performance. 24 brake horsepower per year was an unbelievable level of progress. And as we head to Hungary for this week's Grand Prix, let's remember for a moment that it was at the Hungaro Ring in 1991 that Ilmor scored their first World Championship point. Mario, many thanks for your time, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Now, please send in your thoughts and stories about Mario Illion. What did you think of our chat? What did you make of Ilmor Mercedes' world title successes with McLaren? And the lengths Ilmor went to in order to win? Let me know through all the usual means, and I'll read out some of your messages at the end of next week's show. I'm at TomClarksonF1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid. Which, of course, brings us on to what you sent in after last week's show with Christian Clean, Red Bull's very first young driver. I really enjoyed speaking to Christian, and it seems that many of you enjoyed hearing from him. Let's start with this from Radomirez. This was a nice podcast. My memory of Christian Clean was that he was really arrogant, but this has totally changed my opinion of him. He seems like a nice lad, and I hope you're enjoying yourself, Christian. Well, thanks for the note, Radomirez, and I'm glad the podcast has changed your view of Christian because there's nothing arrogant about him at all. He's just a lovely guy. And what about this from Woody to Goody? Christian should probably have been given more time. He was a very capable driver and has had a solid career. I can't help thinking his Formula One career could have been more, but for Red Bull's impatience and general chaos, well, Woody, Christian was very young when he came into Formula One and he needed time to learn, something that Red Bull often don't give their drivers. Just ask Nick de Vries, who's been shown the door by Alpha Tauri after only 10 races this season. And finally, let's hear from Matthew Chambers. Great to hear from Christian and about the early days of Red Bull. As a proud Aussie and motorsport fan, what a proud moment hearing Christian ranking Bathurst ahead of Le Mans. It is a world-class circuit and it deserves a lot more international attention. Well, you're doing your bit, Matthew, by mentioning it now. And lots of people do say the same. I, for one, would love to pay a visit to Bathurst after the Australian Grand Prix one year. We'll leave it there for messages this week. Thank you to everyone who contributed and we do read all of your messages with great interest. And please remember to send in your thoughts and stories about Mario Illion in time for next week's show. That's almost it for this week. Remember that the latest episode of F1 Nation is out now. It's our preview of the Hungarian Grand Prix and we give our thoughts on Daniel Ricciardo's return to Formula One. And if you haven't listened to the new Formula Y podcast, why not give it a go? You'll learn things about driver fitness, wind tunnels and many more F1 topics. Thanks for listening. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by Formula One and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time... Keep it flat out.